So here's truth. Jesus' death was according to God's plan. God's purpose and plan and the will of God. It was no accident. Regardless of what you believe or what you think or what your maybe previous experience or conversations with individuals might have told you, it was no accident. And one of the most theologically profound verses in the Bible is Acts 2.23, which speaks to this very issue. So look with me up on the screen at Acts 2.23. Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. So that tells us that God had a plan. Peter had a plan also. And Peter's plan and God's plan did not match up. We saw this a couple weeks ago when we were together that Peter took some action because he believed that he knew better what was supposed to happen. So there's God's plan up on the screen and in your Bible in Acts 2.23. God's plan was that Jesus would be delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. And that's why I say it's theologically rich and extremely profound in that one verse we see God's plan. It's the way God operates. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Thus saith the Lord. I operate above your thinking plane. So we saw what Peter's plan was last time we were together. Peter's plan was to do this. Look with me on the screen at John 18.10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Kind of an ancient form of body piercing, if you will. Okay, So body piercing in an entirely different manner. He intended to kill the guy. So what we understand looking at John 18, where we left off last week, is that Peter's plan was that God would not allow Jesus to be taken, but yet God's plan was that Jesus would be taken because he wanted him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That's what we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now what was Jesus' response when Peter did this? Jesus' response to Peter was, Peter, should I not have the cup that the Father has handed me? You can't intervene and stop what God is about to do. This was part of the plan. So what we find is Jesus takes the cup completely and He absorbs it entirely, the cup of God's wrath and judgment on the cross because of what we see in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus takes the cup because it's given to him right from the hand of God. That's why he responded to Peter, should I not bear the cup the Father's handed me? Earlier this week on Wednesday, um, when Micah Magnuson passed away, I got a text from Rich Bruce about 11 o'clock in the morning. And he said, this would probably be a really good time to come talk with Dale. So I went over and started talking with Dale and having the conversation with him I said, does this feel like a cup you cannot bear? At that moment, Sherry overheard the conversation. She said, yes. This feels like a cup I cannot bear. How can I bear this? When we're given the cup from God's hand, we never need to fear it, church. 
it may be terribly painful and we may suffer heartbreak in the midst of it, but he will eventually transform that for his glory. And those cups that it looks like from a human perspective you cannot possibly bear, God says, yes, you can. I trusted you with it. Now, in Micah's case, God knew that he could no longer bear the cup of living in that body on planet Earth. And so he removed him. And he transformed him for a greater glory. So Peter's faced with the same exact situation. He thinks there's a cup that cannot be born. But Jesus says, I'm going to bear the cup the Father's given me because it's been prepared in love. And there's a much bigger picture associated with it, Peter. You just don't understand it. But he will soon. So that's where I want to take you this morning is into Peter's experience. It's a narrative. It goes back and forth by John, showing us Jesus, showing us Peter. And it's in John 18, 12. And we get to see what took place at the fire when Peter's standing there and what took place in the room in Annas' house when Jesus is under arrest. So go with me to John 18, if you would, and we'll pick up at verse 12 where we left off last time. Verse 12 says this, So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Last time we were together, we learned that a Roman cohort is between 600 and 1,000 men, depending on the severity of the situation. Whether they sent 1,000 men, Roman soldiers of the Praetorian Guard, out to arrest Jesus, we don't know, or if they sent 600. But along with that cohort, that battalion, they sent out commanders. A, a chilarkos is what we're told, the Greek word for it, the word commander, a commander of 1,000 soldiers. So we've got, along with the Chilarcos, we've got the officer of the Jews. And he's leading the temple police force. And they've accompanied by their superiors this entire mass out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and they arrest him. Now before I get into the binding of Jesus, look at verse 13. It says something that's kind of confusing. It says they led him to Annas first. Now, Annas is not the high priest. He's not, a, he's not the guy in charge. Why take him there? Well, he had served as the high priest. As a matter of fact, he had served very powerfully. And he's like the godfather of Israel at this point in time. Annas has a system, and his system is to make money. Now, his son-in-law is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the new high priest by title only, not in power. So at this period of time, according to what historians tell us, we understand that Caiaphas from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36 was the name figure. But the power behind the name figure was Annas. Now here's the problem with that. If you go back to the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, you find that when God said, put a high priest in position, and when a high priest is in position, he will remain the high priest of Israel for his entire life. Until his death, you will not remove him. But Rome is changing high priests like you change dirty laundry because they don't want all the power vested in one man. So Rome is removing men and putting men into office because they have the authority to do so. They have the power position. So as Annas has time off, he's no longer the high priest, he develops this business 
And this business is very successful. It takes place inside the courtyard of the temple. Now, mind you, the temple courtyard is massive. And inside this courtyard, they're selling livestock. And there's money changers who are changing coins. And these individuals who come to the temple to make sacrifices to God, they bring their animals with them in order to make a sacrifice. And when they get there, a priest stops them at the gate, inspects their animal, and says, well, your animal doesn't qualify. It's blemished. By our determination, you have to leave your animal outside the temple courtyard and come inside and buy one of ours at a slightly increased price. And by the way, you can't make an offering without the coins of the temple tax and you have to leave your Roman coins outside. So go to our money changers and they'll change your money over for you and get rid of the Roman insignia and we'll give you some of the temple coins to make your offering at a slightly increased price. See, this is Annas' system. He controls it. It's an entire monopoly. So when Jesus shows up and cleans out the temple, who's he ticking off? The Godfather. Annas is not happy. Annas is seeing his business being cut into. That's one of the reasons he has a special hatred for Jesus. And so he decides, I'm going to take Jesus out. The other guys have other reasons. Now, the high priest is an authority on his interpretation of religious Scripture, and he thinks Jesus is teaching contrary. So he decides to conduct his own individual trial in his living room. So you see in verse 13, it says, they led him to Annas first because they bring him to the mansion of the former high priest. And it says that they bound him up. Now understand that Annas is regarded with great respect by his contemporaries. He is not a stupid man. As a matter of fact, when you think of him, think of him like the Supreme Court Chief Justice in the United States. That's how highly revered this individual is. He's considered an expert in religious matters. And if anyone can trap Jesus, it's Annas. So we'll take him to him first. We've captured him. Now we'll see if we can trap him into saying something that he shouldn't say. So while Caiaphas, when you read his name, is an office holder in Rome, understand that Annas is the power behind the throne. Now it says that they bound him. In the first century, this is the way they bound a criminal. When the soldiers showed up and delivered the arrest warrant, the first thing they would do is bring out the shackles. They'd grab the man's arms and not put handcuffs on him, but rather they'd rip his arms behind him high up and wrap him in chains. And at the point they have his arms wrapped in chains, they begin wrapping a noose around his neck. So that if he lowers his arms, he begins choking himself. That's the way every criminal was arrested. So when Jesus is led away, bound up in chains, this is the way your king is walking away, trying to keep himself from choking his own neck. He's arrested in the clothing that he has on that day. They don't provide any warmth for him. And now the hours etch away and it gets close to midnight. The formal arrest has taken place. Jesus has the noose around his neck, literally and figuratively. If you watch The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie that he made a few years ago, you see it's accurately interpreted. When you see Jesus wrapped in chains, that is what it looked like. Go with me to verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. 
Now understand, this mansion is surrounded by a very large courtyard. It's very customary at this period of time. The last time we saw Peter, he's running away because he's going to be brought up on assault charges. He just pulled the knife out. He tried slicing the guy's ear off. So he's running away with all the other disciples, but apparently he regains his composure and decides, thinking in his mind, what am I doing, and begins following Jesus. But according to Mark, he's following in the shadows. He's in the bushes. They don't know he's there. He's at a distance. And he's retracing Jesus' steps and this entire Roman cohort back into Jerusalem over the Kidron Valley. And of all places, they show up at the courtyard of the high priest. I'm sure Peter's thinking, what are they doing? Now, we're told in verse 15, there's another disciple. It's not named. But the another disciple, many people believe probably John, might have been Nicodemus. But someone who has the authority to come in and is recognized right into the courtyard of Annas. Now, how a fisherman has that kind of recognition, I don't know. I don't know about the family relationships between John's dad and the high priest. But somehow, this news has made it around the metropolis of Jerusalem. All over the city, people's smartphones are beginning to go off. Newsflash, Jesus has been arrested. People are getting Twittered. Jesus has been arrested. I know they don't have smartphones at that time, but you know there was communication. People began chattering. And somehow this other disciple showed up. He sees Peter standing outside and decides, I'm going to help him come in. So whoever this person is, he's got the authority to walk into the high priest's courtyard without being questioned. Go forward with me to verse 17 because that's an important detail. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now this girl, who is a slave girl, we don't know what age, probably a teenager, she recognized the other disciple and knew him well enough to know that he had permission to come in to the high priest's courtyard. That means she probably also knew him well enough, no doubt, that he was someone who's associated with Jesus. And that he turned around and said, it's okay, he's with me means this guy had some degree of authority. He could bring other people in who were strangers. Now, Peter feels the question is intimidating. And this first denial comes at the point of admittance into the courtyard. So what's not so evident here is that this other disciple is also in danger. He's someone who's known to associate with Jesus. But yet you don't see him denying Jesus. Perhaps he's in even greater danger because they know him pretty well. But he does not deny Jesus. So I can picture in my mind this man coming to the gate and saying, it's okay, he's with me. And as they walk through the gate together, because they're close enough to have conversation, she says, are you with him also? Now, if you're the other disciple, you're going to turn around when you hear your buddy Peter say, no, I'm not with him. I'd be thinking, Peter, what are you thinking? You're the one who just said a couple hours ago that you would lay down your life. You're the one who said you're willing to go to prison for Jesus. That's a striking contrast. But I have to ask ourselves here in 2012, how often do we find ourselves confronted with the very same situation? Someone identifies you, says, are you a Christian? 
I just, you know, I'm curious. Maybe it takes place in a, a group setting. Maybe this is how it takes place for you. You go to a restaurant with your family. You sit down at Olive Garden, and one of your kids or somebody in the group says, hey, we should pray before we eat, and immediately you feel your heart quicken because you know the whole restaurant's looking at you, and you feel that sense of, oh, man, nervousness. But it's a witness to the world watching you, who you belong to when you bow your head in prayer. So you can feel the tension. You can identify with what Peter's feeling. Add to that the fact that his master has just been arrested and is on trial for his life. You can appreciate what Peter's feeling. So what's the harm in him saying, yes, I belong to Jesus? Is his memory so recent and so threatened because he's the disciple who just struck off the ear of the servant of the high priest? Is he going to be brought off on an assault charge? Now, Peter's not accustomed to being among the rich and powerful. So perhaps this is a setting he found himself very uncomfortable in. So here's what I think. When I look at this situation and I know human nature, because I know my own human nature, and human nature has a reasoning process. So Peter coming to the gate, I'm thinking he's viewing this first instance of self-distancing as his right of admission It's his ticket. So when the question is asked of him, do you belong to Jesus? And his response is, no, I do not know him. You know there's a process going on in his mind that's caused him to think, if I deny, I'll get into the courtyard. This is my ticket in. I'll just do it this one time. I'll deny, and then I'll be in, and I can get closer to Jesus. This will work. No one knows the difference. But the guy who let him in the gate knew And here's the danger, church. Every time you don't take a position for who you belong to, once presented as the safe answer, it is so easy to repeat it with increasing intensity and frequency. And students who are about to step back into school in the next couple weeks or the next week, this is for you. Because you're going to enter into hallway conversations out in the courtyard, outside the school building, which people are going to identify you very quickly, student size up other students, don't they? Trying to figure out where do you belong. Take your stand from the beginning. Be bold at the beginning of the school year. Let them know who you stand for because you see in Peter's life, it became easier and easier for him as the evening unfolds for him to say, I've got nothing to do with that guy. Go forward with me to verse 18. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. So Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. That means the nighttime temperatures drop really quick. There is a little bit thinner up there. So they have really chilly nights in Jerusalem. You know you've got an eyewitness account. John was there. He's the one saying it was a cold night. Now, typically, among the Roman guards and among the temple police, fires were not built in the middle of the night because it wasn't considered necessary to waste fuel on them. They had duties to do. They were on guard. So you know the very fact that there's a fire built in the courtyard means there's an extraordinary situation going on here, an extraordinary reason for people to be up at midnight to three in the morning. These circumstances are very unusual. So Peter's desperate to avoid any more awkward questions and he looks across the courtyard and he sees the glow of a fire and it's cold. 
So he edges himself across the courtyard and he's standing by the fire. And he puts himself in a very vulnerable position. And he wants the warmth. And we're told it's just a charcoal fire. And not a lot of heat coming out of a charcoal fire, but enough if you can get close enough to warm you up. But it's not going to light your face up necessarily. So you can see the confusion. Why do people start asking, I think that was you, but they can't really tell for sure. I was very humbled this week when I'm looking at this passage very closely and I'm realizing during all this time, Jesus is still in chains. He's still got the noose around his neck. He's in Caiaphas' mansion. And it's cold. He's just got the clothes on that he was arrested in. Peter has the benefit of standing next to a fire. And Jesus has got a human body. He's chilled, just like every one of us would be. And Peter's found himself in this ironic situation. He winds up standing with the very enemy who have just arrested the king of kings. And the warmth of the fire feels good, but he can see Jesus. We're told according to Luke, they lock eyes. We'll get into that in just a few minutes, but you now appreciate the environment in which Peter has placed himself, extraordinarily vulnerable. But human nature has called him forward because he believes he knows God's plan better than God, and he wants to know, how am I going to help this situation? Go forward with me to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So John throws us right back into the mansion now. We're no longer in the courtyard. We're inside the house. About his disciples and about his teaching. There's an interrogation taking place. And for those of you with legal minds, you'll appreciate what's going on here because this is a blatant attempt to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Remember, they have been working on this scheme for months They have laid the groundwork for how are they going to arrest Jesus and put a thin veneer of legality on the murder charge. They want to justify the death sentence. So Jewish law, like United States law, had an amendment. We have the Fifth Amendment in which individuals cannot incriminate themselves. You cannot compel someone in the United States to testify against themselves. Same thing takes place in Jewish law. You cannot force a criminal to bring charges against themselves. And so the way they protected that was they would bring witnesses in who would bring the charges before the charges were announced, before any of the questioning takes place. But immediately, as soon as Jesus is brought in, you see the questioning taking place. So Annas, who is the expert in the law, decides to defy the law and begin questioning Jesus. Tell me about the number of your disciples. It's very important. If there's a revolution about to unfold here, we need to know how many people are involved. Tell me about your activity. Who are the disciples? What about them? Are they organized? Do they intend to overthrow Rome? Tell me more details. Do one of them use a sword in the garden? Because that's what I heard. One of my servants had his ear cut off. Who used the weapon? Tell me. You can hear the questioning taking place. And Jesus just listens to the questions. But as you read the account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Jesus says nothing about his disciples. They've already ran and left him. Now think about this. Peter is within eyeshot in the courtyard, warming himself, denying Jesus. Jesus is inside the room defending Peter. Go forward with me now to verse 20. 
Now the law required that witnesses always be called before a prisoner was questioned. With that in mind, you know that Jesus is well aware of the law by reading verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? He understands the law. You're questioning me before you bring the witnesses. Now that's why he makes the next statement. Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Honor the law, Annas. Bring the witnesses into the room. Question them. They heard me publicly. So Jesus' challenge is a bite to the leading legal mind in the entire nation at that time. He's correcting the Supreme Court justice saying, you're not following the rules. Interrogate the witnesses, not the defendant. That's why they have the reaction that they do. Now understand, Jesus has nothing to hide. There's no secrets. He's openly declared the rules of the kingdom of God. He taught in all the public places. That's why he said, in the synagogues and in the temple. It was a public forum. Now look at the reaction because truth has a way of penetrating so deeply that it has this self-evident power. And those who oppose the truth find it very difficult to deny it. So typically they do one of two things. They either yell louder back at you or they lash out in some way because it's easier to silence the truth than to attempt to answer the truth. And so this is what you see in verse 22. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? So the first blow is landed. This is the first physical strike, slap on the face. And the Greek word that's used here is a rapidsma. It means his hand was wide open and he took a full swing right across Jesus' face, probably knocking his head back. And you remember, he's got the noose around him. And the officer takes this action. Now, what did it take at that moment in time to hold back the 72,000 angels that Jesus said were waiting to come at the mere speak of his name? You know they're watching this. Jesus said, I could have called 10 legions of angels to rescue me. This guy strikes him for no reason. So let's process what we've known over the last two weeks. Jesus deliberately gave himself to his enemies. The moment that they bind him and lead him out, they take him to the house of Annas. It's illegal. He's not the authority holding office any longer. They take him into his house to interrogate him at midnight. And they begin to interrogate a prisoner illegally. And now a commanding officer is allowed to strike him across the face. Everything about this smacks of illegality. And I want you to notice this because this is very important, Christians, living in this day and age when Christians are prosecuted and persecuted. Look at what happens next because Jesus does not back down. In the face of the most leading legal authority in the land, he challenges them. And here's why I want you to see this very carefully. Because many Christians think it's what Christ called us to do to turn the other cheek. But they misunderstand what that means. It's captured in a quote here because you'll understand Jesus is no wimp. Let me show you this quote. 
Turning the other cheek without bearing witness to the truth is not the fruit of moral resolution, but the terrorized cowardice of the wimp. Jesus understood that. He's not a wimp, so he presses the point. And what's he going to do here? He's going to expose their hypocrisy. Go with me to verse 23. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now understand, this is not an act of defiance on Jesus' part. He's merely demanding that the requirements of the law be observed. Why? Because he's unmasking Annas' hypocrisy. For you sitting here on August 26, 2012, and every Christian who has lived before you, who have read these accounts down through the ages, we understand this was a corrupt system. And Jesus is there to bring that out. So he's saying, present your case. Call your witnesses. I'm challenging you. And you will find I have done nothing wrong. But he's still accepting the cup that God has given him. So they're embarrassed. They're irritated. They strike Jesus. Do you think it was a gentle slap? I think it was a forceful one. So in spite of Jesus' protest, nothing is done because they're not about to give him a fair trial. So if you fast forward 10, 20, 30, 35 years, Peter's an old man and he's looking back on this moment, this very evening in time, and he remembers this incident. And in 1 Peter 2, 23, he records for us what he saw. Look with me on the screen. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So because of Jesus' brilliant answer, Annas doesn't have anything else to do. He's the high court of the land. And so what's he do? He takes this prisoner who's bound, and he sends him off to Caiaphas, the figurehead, who is legally the one who can present a charge before Pilate in order for capital punishment. So this really struck me this week because Romans 1.18 says that men love darkness rather than light. Annas has the light of the world in his living room, but he loves darkness because it makes him a lot of money and he's powerful. So rather than loving the light of the world that's standing in his living room, he ships him out for the next level of prosecution. So John now throws us back out into the courtyard so we can see it wraps up with Peter standing around the fire again. Verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now, Peter's remained at the fire, so it's no wonder that he's been approached again. And it's not only providing temporary warmth for him, but the angle is just right. He can look right inside, and he has a view of Jesus. He sees all this. He sees the slap. He understands this reviling taking place. Now, the others around the fire, when it says the pronoun they, it means the entire group took up the accusation. You, you were with him. We know you were with him. You're part of him. And whether the fire flares or somebody walks away from the fire and the house light hits Peter just right, one single individual standing at the fire looks at Peter and says, I know you. I, I, I saw you. I, you were the one standing. I was at the garden. I know you were there. 
I was in the garden and you were with Jesus. Yes, I saw you. Go with me to verse 2259 of the book of Luke because we understand that they identified him also by his clothing. Luke 22:59 says this, after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist saying, certainly this man also was with him for he is a Galilean. See, a Galilean had a certain brogue to their voice. They're from northern Israel. And they could identify what part of the country and their clothing was different. So they look at him and they understand. Now, put yourself in this situation. If you're walking along with a family member, men, maybe you're walking with your wife or you're walking with your children and you're down a sidewalk in an evening and someone jumps out of an alley and pulls a knife out and begins slashing at you, you're going to remember that person's face, aren't you? It's going to be emblazoned in your mind. When you look at this next verse, have that picture in your thought process. Verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed. Now across the street from where Lori and I live, our neighbors uh, got the brilliant idea of getting chickens about a year ago. And they, they bought 12 hens. Well, actually, they thought they bought 12 hens. They bought 11 hens and one rooster. And he's a very proud rooster, let me tell you. He doesn't mind announcing his presence on a regular basis. There is no mistaking the sound of a rooster. And when a rooster crows, you know that's a rooster. I can hear him a long, long ways away. Peter knew this shrill sound. And immediately, his mind flashes back to what Jesus' words were spoken to him only two hours earlier. Peter, before this evening's over, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. Now, Peter is surrounded by people challenging who he belongs to. Individuals who are taking him up on his faith and whether or not he belongs to Jesus. And his heart is pumping faster and faster and he's becoming incredibly nervous and he's in a hostile environment. And we understand that there's four watches during this period of time. The, the first watch was the evening watch, which took place from nine o'clock till midnight. It's when the guards went on duty and they changed based on the watches. And, the, and this, that was six to nine o'clock. The second one was the midnight watch, which is nine to 12 o'clock. The third watch of the evening from midnight to three in the morning is called the watch of the rooster crow or the cock crow. The fourth watch is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's called the morning watch. So the rooster typically would crow around three in the morning. So we understand that Peter's in the midst of the middle of the evening. And this crowing, it strikes me that this is confirmation to Peter God's in total control of this situation. Everything that he said would happen has happened. Yes, he's overcome with grief. He's overcome with sorrow. But he hears God's word verified by a bird across the courtyard speaking. And Jesus had just said, this very thing that you're about to do, Peter, is going to be validated by a bird crowing. And Peter understands God's word is true. And he's consumed with grief. Even though Jesus is bound and being slapped and led away in chains with a noose around his neck, God's in control. 
That cup looks so hard to bear. But it's not a surprise to God. He knew that it was coming. It didn't catch him off guard. So this is so ironic that by a bird, Jesus affirms he is sovereign and he has absolute control. Jesus is in complete control at this moment. Immediately the rooster crows and Peter can't take it any longer and he runs. And he went out and wept bitterly according to what Scripture tells us. But before that happens, a very important detail. In this particular moment, the two dramas are drawn together. See, up till now, Jesus has been inside. Peter's outside. But now the two are one because of what Luke tells us. There's a much deeper insight here. Jesus turns and looks at him. You feel the eye connection? And that look broke Peter's heart. Look with me on the screen at Luke twenty-two sixty-one. At that very moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Overwhelmed with shame and with guilt and grief at his own failure and his sin, he runs out and he weeps bitterly. I promise you, many of you know that exact same look. You feel like you failed God in some way. And you feel the sense of his presence. And you sense he's looking right at me. He knows that I screwed up. And here's what most humans sense, because Peter sensed it. You sense that he's looking at you with disgust. How could you screw up again? That's not your God. That is not consistent with the nature and character of your God. It's not true. He's looking at you with compassion. He's looking at you with the eyes of mercy and grace. That's your God. At that moment, Jesus could have said, right there, that's one of my followers, the one that's standing out there denying me at the fire. He does belong to me. Arrest him too. He reviled not. He spoke not. He didn't turn in his disciples because it's the character and the nature of your God to love you to the bitter end. That is his nature. And that's why this is the turning point in Peter's life. At this moment, this revelation of his own weakness, it's no longer the powerful Peter with the sword in his side. I'll cut you open. It's now the broken Peter who's crushed Because he's recognizing, I'm so convicted. All the humans in the world standing around Peter, accusing him, could not get him to have a broken heart. It was at the moment he realized the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word spoke and he's confronted with his own human nature, and it becomes something he cannot escape or talk his way out of, and he's a sinner in need of a Savior, just like you and I, church. That's where you see Peter at. So this bird crowing, this is Peter's invitation to repentance. 
And here's where I'd like to end with you this morning. I want to take you back to the conversation between Peter and Jesus. Several hours earlier, when Jesus said, Peter, Satan wants you and he has demanded to sift you like wheat. He's going to grind you up. I'm going to pray for you, Peter. Look with me on the screen, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But what does his God do for him? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows also that he's going to turn again. He's going to come back to him. He also knows in the future there's going to be repentance. So it says this, his response in verse 33, but he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. See, this crowing is the announcement of the arrival of a new day, a brand new day in Peter's life. So in the garden and in the courtyard, there's guilt and there's shame and there's grief, but there's also grace. So that's why I asked Michael to use this song that we had just before the message. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my all. Peter understood it. This is gratefully, this is not the last time we see Peter. In about two weeks, we're going to see him again. It's not the last time on the scene. As serious as his failure is, even greater is the grace that forgave and restored him, church. The same grace of God that restores you. No matter how big you think your screw-up is, no matter how much you think you've failed, there's hope for all of us. As Peter was restored in the same way, so we're going to discover soon that Peter is not only restored, but as a restored man, he advances the kingdom of God. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now because the potential is that we could be distracted thinking about other things. Let's invite God to speak to us. How does this apply specifically to my life? Would you pray with me about that? Father, we're about to hear this, this music again that your love is so amazing and it's so divine that it demands everything of us. Father, as we hear these notes played, I ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to speak directly to every single heart this morning. Regardless of what we have going on, God, regardless of the distractions, bring us fully into this moment. Speak to us. God, if there's one here that's worried that the cup that they've been delivered about a loss of a job and they cannot bear it, Cause them to recognize you would not deliver something to them that they cannot bear. Father, for the, for the one who feels like they've, they've totally lost their family, remind them, Father, that your strength is sufficient. And God, for my brother or sister here that feels as though they have messed up so severely it could never be taken back by you, God, show them the grace and the mercy that you showed Peter. I pray, Father, that they would feel a sense of your compassion, but your grace, which trumps all, God, let it rest heavy upon them. 
Father, as we hear this music, I, I ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to be upon this room. If there's a need for an individual to come forward right now and, and to cast their care before you at the steps of this altar, God, call them forward. In whatever manner you want to move in our heart, Father, we welcome that. We, we accept that. We invite you to do that. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.